This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Where Are We Heading To? And the author is Tuso Kawana, and Tuso joins us now on Author Talk. He is from South Africa. Hello, Tuso. Hi, Steve. Great to have you with us. Let me read what you've written about your book so everyone understands a little bit more about this passion of yours. You say this, this is the book that will cause inner commotion when you read it, but it will open your eyes and transform you. Uh, You also say you don't think there's any other book like this. Uh, The book deals with the unbiblical practices that are common in the church today, and it goes directly to some pastors who are commercializing and profiting from the Word of God. And so your whole desire is to get people back to reading the Bible and understanding it, and literally... uh, understanding if the pastors are on on a target or not, right? Yes, Steve. Well, tell us about yourself, too, so a little bit about your background and why you decided to write your book. Um, Steve, um, uh, I, I, I grew up, you know, in, in, in a very staunch um, so-called Dutch Reformed Church, you know, where, where the, the minister was basically, you know, getting everything uh, from the church and they were getting a meager salary. And then as I grew up, then I joined the Pentecostal Church. And, um, and, and, and I was ordained as, as a pastor, and I stayed in his church uh, as an assistant pastor to a guy who passed away. And um, basically, as, as a pastor, my senior pastor used to be the person who was giving more to the church than anybody else because he had businesses. And he wouldn't take anything from the church. Okay? And um, so when he passed away, the congregants were expecting that, okay, I will continue as, as, as a pastor of the church because I was an assistant pastor. But his father came back and said that, no, the church belongs to the family. And uh, so he took over. And from the, from the day he started, you know, uh, preaching, he was basically talking about money, all the time talking about money. Um, then I sat down and, 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 I, and I said, God, is, is this what you want us to do, to talk about money in church? And um, he basically, the Holy Spirit said that, okay, what is the Bible saying? Okay. Then I read the Bible and especially about tithing and giving. Then I realized that what we are doing, it's not what the New Testament is talking about. And then I pulled out of the church, and I stayed at home um, with my wife, and, uh, and then we, during that period we were out of the church, we started reading the Bible thoroughly. We went, you know, from... Genesis to, to, to Revelation. Then we realized that 
we are missing the point. And 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 you know, if if, if you read the Bible in in Isaiah, as in Isaiah one verse eighteen, God is saying, "Come, let us reason together." Then I realize that this is where we're failing. We don't want to reason with God in church. We want to swallow whatever you know um, the, the 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 pastor is saying. Currently, um, I'm the leader of um, a group of people that we're meeting at home, and we call ourselves Heart to Heart Ministries because we believe that we need to share the Word of God. That's basically what is happening right now. And my wife and I will also give talks to the newlyweds about the values of um, of, of the couples in, 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 in families. Well, some are saying, after reading your book, at last somebody is courageous enough to tell the truth, and this is what we have been waiting for. Thank you, Tuso. So it sounds like uh, you've got many who see the truth and understand what you're saying. That's very, very good, Tuso. So uh, when you look at you look at the Bible... What's your biblical understanding about God's calling into the ministry? Steve, if, 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 if it is God's calling, you know, I actually think in one of the chapters here I talk about, about um, if you are employed by God, God provides. Okay? So if, if, if it's a calling from God, then God calling to any man will, 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 will make that man to listen to, to, to God. And by listening to God, you go to the Bible and do exactly what God commands a man that he has called to do. So the Word of God is not for profit? Not at all. Not at all. If it was for profit, Steve, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, with those 12 guys, you must know some of them were business people. People like Peter, they were fishermen. They had their own businesses. Christ would have said to them, guys, come and follow me. I will make your business to prosper. I will make you billionaires, trillionaires, whatever. But they left their businesses to be killed for the word of God. So that's what I'm saying to you. The word of God is not for profit. If really you are called by God, you will do what God has ordered you to do. You will not, like Paul is saying, peddle the word of God for profit. So Christians are gullible? Very much so. Very much so, Steve. As, as, as I've said, that what, what, what we do as a Christian, we go to church. We go to church, and, and we trust that the man behind the pulpit is, is, is telling us the truth. Okay? And, and secondly, whatever that man is saying, who's standing behind the pulpit, we don't question them. We don't question what they are saying. We just swallow everything, and we do exactly what they are saying we must do without questioning that. That is why I'm saying that, you know, um, Christians are a gullible. So your book is not condemning people, but you're coming down hard on the systems that are being applied in the church by some pastors. Very much so, very much so. If, if you read the book at the beginning, it says that we, I, I don't want people to leave their churches. Because the Word of God does not say that 
we need we need to fellowship. So all what I'm saying is that let's reason as in Isaiah one verse eighteen where God says, Come, let us reason together. When you say to a human being, Come, let us reason together, you are saying, Use your mind. Tell me what you think about what challenge me about what I'm t- what I'm telling you. But we don't do that in churches. And and, and, and then the strange part about this is that when people are preaching to the congregants, when they talk about the Old Testament, what Christ has basically ruled out in Old Testament, things that he has ruled out, like when, when Christ is saying that, you know, I'm the Lord of Sabbath, okay? And, 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 and we talk to people about those things. But when it comes to tithing, Steve, we keep on saying that God said must die, die, die. But we don't tell the people why God introduced tithing to the Israelites. So how do you see that? Okay, that's why I'm saying that I see that as, as, as that we as Christians, we, we, we need to read the Word of God. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to be able to reveal the truth about the Word of God to us. So that whatever we hear from the pulpit, we are able to reason it. You know, as I've said that, you know, um, whether you give one dollar, whether you give million dollars, the love of God does not depend on the amount of money that you give to church. What's your biblical understanding about feeding the poor? Okay, that one I fully agree with it. That one I fully agree with it. Um, it's something that the uh, to ministries that we practice feeding the, feeding the poor because um, God is the God of the poor. So that's why I say in the book that it is much better that I take this $10,000 that I've got and go to a charity somewhere where there's poor kids or poor people are struggling and go and give that money there than give the money to the church. There one thing in mind, Steve. I am not saying that it is wrong to give the church if the church is going to take that money as it is and, and, and take it to the poor people. But you find that half of that money is used for something else. And it's worse now in, in our African countries. You know, you find that pastors are filthy rich, filthy rich, out of the money that comes from the congregation. And yet underneath their nose, there are people who are starving and they're not fed. You have a very strong conviction, and you write that all those who believe in Jesus Christ have power, power to do anything through the Holy Spirit. So that's the focus of your whole ministry. That power is available for everyone. Yes. You see, actually, if you look at the Old Testament of Steve, okay, um, there was only one uh, person who was allowed to go to the Holy of Holies. It was only the priest. And that now for, for, for the theme of, 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 of the nation, which is the Jewish nation. But when Christ died, he opened that, that whosoever believes 
in me. Whosoever believes. When you say whosoever believes, is anybody believes in Jesus Christ, okay, as the Son of God, will have that power. So your whole desire is to expose believers to the truth as it is written in the Bible. It is not what is uh, created by man, that he might mix a little of the Bible in with his own personal views, and, and you're trying to get everyone focused right on the Bible so they understand biblical truth and understand what's being said from the pulpit. Because the power of understanding the Bible, Steve, it lies in reading the Bible yourself. The power of understanding the Bible it lies in you asking the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth in the Bible. And when you do that, because the Holy Christ says that, you know, I will send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will teach you the truth. What about? And that's the only way people can understand the full truth of the gospel. What about Bible schools? Steve, unfortunately, unfortunately, they have been commercialized now, right now. You know, I, I, I've tried, I don't know how many Bible schools I've went to. And I would go and I would, you know, do, I would study and do the, and, and do the test. But my spirit will always be grieved by what I hear from the Bible schools. And, and there's a huge competition now in terms of, you know, you'll find that within in one geographical area, there'll be about four to five churches. And each and every church has got its own Bible school. And if you go and look at the content of that, of that Bible school, you'll find that it differs from church to church. And each and every church is marketing its own Bible school. And all this information is coming from one book. That is the Bible. And it's supposed to be common. And instead of all those churches coming together and saying that, okay, fine, this is what we're going to do, going to do uh, in, uh, as a curriculum, in, they, will com- they will be competing about the number of students that they are getting. And it has been commercialized, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to say that. Well, we appreciate you sharing your heartfelt view of the situation in churches today, and of course, uh, your book, Where Are We Heading To? And the author is Tuso Kawana from South Africa, and Tuso has been sharing with us his passion and and his desire just to uh, lead people in the right direction, back to God through the Bible, the truth of the Bible. Tuso, tell us how to get your book. Uh, the book is available in um, in, in Amazon dot uh, com. It is also available available in the, the bookstore from Author House, and um, it's also available in my website. That is www twenty the number twenty century. Believers.com. Well, we appreciate you being with us, Tuso, on Author Talk. Okay, okay, thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station?
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Fate, Choice, and Chance, An Immigrant's Quest, and the author is Jeffrey Hepburn, and Jeffrey joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jeffrey. Good afternoon. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, This is a bit autobiographical. Yeah, a Spanish friend of mine said, mine said that uh, first novels are often autobiographical, and, and mine is no exception. Um, just like the main character in the book, I grew up in a small town in Canada. I uh, completed my graduate education at Harvard and MIT um, before emigrating to the United States. And it comes from... Uh I guess an essay that you read uh, by an English poet, how you came up with this fate, choice, and chance? Uh, Yes, I was reading the essay by W.H. Auden, uh, the English poet. Uh, um, The title of the essay is The Quest Hero. He makes the comment in the essay that the history of nations is shaped by the interplay of fate, choice, and chance. And I thought that applies equally to the lives of individuals. If we interpret fate to be our family traditions, our genetic heritage, social and economic status, status, the town and the country in which we were born, and then you have random uh, events interacting with fate, provoking crises, forcing decisions that can change the direction of a person's life. So uh, that's why I selected um, those three words for my title, fate, choice. Well, I guess it's four if you (laughs) include the preposition, fate, choice, and chance. And we look at this main character, Ben Peters, who you say he's trying to uh, escape his family traditions and, of course, involving poverty, and he's got some bad memories of the past, and he's lived in this small Canadian town and, of course, again, to play off of the title, fate and chance uh, results in a whole bunch of choices that leads him to the present. So you're, it's kind of a, what is a kind of a look back? 
It's a, it's a look back. It's a retrospective. Um, when I wrote the book, uh, initially I was going to go to the point where the, a young man encounters a major setback that, change, that, that changes the direction of his life. But uh, a friend of mine advised me to go farther. So what I did was I took the book to the end of um, this financial executive's business career. It becomes a retrospective on his life. And um, he, although he became financially successful on Wall Street in New York, he never forgave the people responsible for trampling on his youthful dreams. So it becomes a retrospective, going back to the small town where he grew up and that he desperately tried to escape. Goes back to uh, a job experience that he had, which uh, was at at the time seemed devastating. In retrospect, he realizes that some of the changes triggered by that setback had been positive. He starts reconstructing the past and comes to a point where he can forgive the people with whom he was in conflict in the past. And there's a contrast in this book between uh, the way the the main character dealt with with the crisis in his life, uh, you know, it's sort of shutting out the past, breaking off relationships, and only coming to terms with the past 30 years later. And the example set by an Anglican minister whose son was shot in a high school shooting in, in the same small town where the main character had attended school many years before. And um, the Anglican minister could have been absolutely devastated by the loss of his son who was killed in that high school shooting. Instead, he made use of that tragedy and, and gave it a very positive turn. The funeral, uh, the, the shooting, of course, shocked everyone in Canada. And this is very topical, by the way, because of the Newtown shootings, and we've had shootings elsewhere, Colorado and a variety of other places. But um, the whole country, uh, the, Canada was shocked by the, by the shooting. The funeral service was, was nationally televised, and the minister took use, made use of that opportunity to forgive the murderer of his son. And he went beyond that as well, because he wanted to give his son's death some meaning. And so he launched a national campaign against bullying, which had been the cause of the shooting. The son had never engaged in bullying. He was the random victim of uh, the shooting. Somebody who had been bullied mercilessly took a gun into the school and started firing. Okay, so... That, that, the, the book show gives you two very contrasting ways of dealing with tragedies and setbacks. Uh, the example set by the Anglican minister and the example set by, by the main character. Um, and all of us deal with tragedies and setbacks at some point in our lives if we live long enough. Uh, so I think it could be of interest you know, to readers. They can relate their own experiences to the struggles of uh, the main character. Um, the example set by the, the Anglican minister, of course, may be uh, a stretch for many of us, but uh, it, it's an interesting contrast in the book. 
Because you have this Christian theme of forgiveness, but at the same time, you have this man who, you know, uh, Ben Peters, who is going through a changing relationship with God. It's um, early in his life, because of the, the, the turmoil within his family, uh, the poverty of his, of his childhood, he begins to question uh, the existence of God or the relevance of God to his life. Later on in his life, or for a certain stretch in his life, things seem to go sublimely well. And again, he feels no need for God. There comes a point in his life, uh, however, when he has nowhere else to turn. Uh, and I think this is maybe um, the kind of journey many of us go through in our religious experiences. So the book is about a reconciliation with the past, and it's also uh, a journey of faith. So does forgiveness lead to reconciliation? Sometimes. Ideally, it does. But even if it doesn't, it helps you to move on with your life so that the past does not burden you, does not uh, weigh you down, prevent you from achieving the happiness and fulfillment uh, that you want. Uh, And I think if you forgive those with whom you were in conflict, even if reconciliation is impossible, it, it may be that you had a conflict, let's say, with a parent or a sibling or a teacher or an, or an employer. They may have died or moved to a different part of the country. They may not be within reach. But um, if you forgive them, uh, you can move on with your life. And you can also forgive yourself because often if you look back on some setback in your life, You think, well, maybe I was at fault. If only I had done something differently, this would not have happened. So uh, I think that also lifts a certain burden from you, and you can take a much more positive attitude toward life thereafter. That's that double-edged sword of forgiveness, I guess, for ourselves, others as well as ourselves. What about conflict that is unresolved and... uh, there doesn't seem to be any compromise to be able to work out. How can the conflict be managed? Well, um, we probably have, we may have had conflicts with a boss at work. Um, sometimes, even if we have certain irreconcilable differences, we can still maintain a civil relationship. That would be one way of managing it. If the conflict is more serious, it can lead to a rupture in relationships, for instance, a divorce or something of that nature. But I think um, even if reconciliation isn't possible, it still psychologically is of enormous benefit to you if you can forgive. If you can reconstruct exactly what happened, you will have a better understanding not only of your own motivations, but the motivations of the people with whom you were in conflict um, I think it makes forgiveness easier. Now you also deal... But reconciliation may not be... I mean, ideally, reconciliation will occur, but it, that is not always possible. 
One of the themes in your book also deals with the financial crisis of 2008. Right. I mean, this is a book that, um, you know, it's a retrospective on the life of a middle-aged executive. And so it, it, it includes uh, commentary on the financial crisis of 2008, but, I mean, it deals with, you know, the innocent 50s, uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, uh, the women's rights movement of the 1970s, the Vietnam War, the Cold War, and, of course, the financial crisis. So I, um, I worked on, on Wall Street for many years, and one thing that struck me was um, the reliance on rather abstract theories, uh, which are taught in many of our business schools. I think uh, we had a certain unraveling, maybe a, a confrontation with reality uh, during that financial crisis, but it seems to me much of what we were taught, I mean, the, the emphasis in the commentary on the financial crisis is being on inadequate regulation or uh, the unintended consequences of regulation. But I think one other, the, uh, another thing we should look at is the modern portfolio theory and some of the other things we were taught in business schools where often we were unaware of the risks that were out, out there. The, the theories often underestimated risk. So people active in financial markets took on enormous amounts of risk, not realizing what they were doing. I think one of the biggest dangers is not knowing what you do not know. Um, if we can identify what we don't know, we can at least try to make qualitative judgments. But sometimes we don't even know what we don't know. That, that's the biggest danger. So your book answers the question, is there a providence guiding our lives? Yes. Um, well, it's it's. I, I I hope that the that people reading this book would uh, find it useful in answering some of the questions they've experienced in their own lives. And as I said, uh, in this main character's life, you know, he went through a period of turmoil growing up when he questioned whether there was a providence. Um, I think only in retrospect, in the end, at, toward the end of his business career, sitting in his library in a very affluent community, suburb of New York City, he thinks back on his life and he realizes uh, that there was a providence guiding him at many particular points in his life. He may not have been aware of it at the time. It, it may not become visible uh, or evident until the end, not necessarily of his life, but of his career when he's contemplating the course that his life has taken. And this is uh, the, the, um, the reason why I chose the subtitle, An Immigrant's Quest, because a quest, quoting again from W.H. Auden, is a search for something you may not even know what you're looking for until you have reached your destination, um, which is why I inserted that as a subtitle the book. Is there another important character that plays off of Ben Peters that helps him see more clearly? Uh, well, the um, I mean, one very important character is uh, Ben Peters' wife, 
um, a woman that he met in graduate school. Uh, when he married her, he didn't realize that it was probably the most important decision that he was ever going to make. And there was a sequence of events which followed from that, which resulted in what, you, what the critical turning point in his life. Initially, it appeared to be a setback to all of his dreams, but ultimately he realizes that his life took a very positive turn thereafter. We've been listening to Jeffrey Hepburn. He is the author of his book, Fate, Choice, and Chance, An Immigrant's Quest. Jeffrey, tell us how to get your book. Uh, it's available on the Author House website. Author House is the publisher. Uh, it's also available online with uh, Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. Uh, it should be available in some bookstores. Um, I have, a, fa I have a, a page on Facebook. I also have a website, www www.jeffreyhepburn.com Well, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you for having me, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one's spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Diamond Deception, and the author, Mike Gallagher, and Mike joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Mike. Hello, Steve. 
Great to have you with us. Uh, this is uh, an investigation thriller, as you describe it. Uh, the Diamond Deception is a crime thriller incorporated into a major league baseball team. It's a cat and mouse undercover investigation story that builds excitement throughout and explodes with action in the end. So, uh, baseball is your love. Yes, it is. Um, I've always been a fan of uh, crime novels and and baseball, and I started putting the two of them together. And I thought, well, what if what if I could um, write a story that um, was a crime thriller story, but it, it involved the baseball team, which is a real dichotomy because you think about baseball being such a wholesome all-American game. But um, you know, in, in the in the backwoods, it could be um, a criminal enterprise too, and uh, that's kind of uh, what I was working on. Now, Pete Dobbins, why don't we start, give us uh, something about his character, you know, what makes him tick? Sure. Sure. Pete um, had, had uh, when he was growing up, was a great baseball player, and he, he had been drafted into the minor leagues, and he, he had an accident. And uh, while he was playing in the minor leagues, that, that ended his baseball career. Um, so he fell back on his secondary career, he, um, and he became an FBI agent. And um, so five years after he becomes an FBI agent, he gets um, a case to solve where three people have been murdered using the same weapon in three different cities over about a four-year period. And as he uncovers, he realizes that, that all of these um, murders are taking place when a particular uh, Major League Baseball team was in those cities. And, um, and so he realizes in order to investigate the crime better, he has to go undercover on that team, in other words, attempt a comeback. So he goes undercover as himself, which is very unusual. Um, typically, when a law enforcement person goes undercover, he makes up an identity. Um, but in this case, he's actually going undercover as himself, so everyone thinks he's trying to um, make a comeback as a baseball player. But in reality, he's investigating these murders. So you've got some, I guess you've got a, uh, is it a major character that's wrongly convicted of a capital crime? Yeah, um, th- that's kind of my uh, my current event thing um, in the book, where um, a, a particular character is in prison. Uh, he's been convicted of a murder that he he didn't commit, and um, and about uh, not quite midway through the book, Pete goes to the prison and, and interviews him, and, and when he starts investigating it, he realizes that this guy's an innocent man, and that the legal system has been manipulated, and uh, so he's got to track down. Um, the man's defense attorney who didn't provide adequate defense and find out why. And, and, and that just adds, adds a layer of suspense and, um, to the story. Well, uh, Trish, his wife, Pete Dobbins' wife, you've, uh, put a little twist of humor into the story through her. Yeah, exactly. I, I was actually inspired to write the Trish character by my wife. My wife's name is Tammy and, uh, and she's always got something funny to say, some <laughs> funny anecdote. She's never met a pun she doesn't like. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I kind of um, in, um, wrote, wrote Trish kind of in, in uh, tribute to my wife, and uh, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary, by the way. Oh, and, congratulations. Um, but, um, but, but Trish kind of steals every scene she's in. I mean, she's got something funny to say, um, and uh, people that have read the book really enjoy reading, reading um, her passages in the book. Those characters just take on a life of their own, don't they? They just start talking to you. 
yeah, I mean, once you once you start writing it, I mean, it, it just all all flows. It's really um, when when you come up with a good uh, personality type and and what a person looks like, um, it's 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 surprising how easy the the dialogue comes and the situations come. Now, tell us about the uh, villains. Um, if, if you were to ask me um, um, what my favorite novel of all time was, I would tell you it, it was the greatest crime novel ever written, which is The Godfather, written by Mario Puzo. And one of the fun things about that book, as well as the movies, is the, the personality differences of the Corleone brothers. And I was inspired by that to write um, the, the two villains in the, um, in the Diamond Deception are brothers. And, and um, they're, they're trying to do the same thing, but their personalities are so different that sometimes, you know, they work against each other. And um, so, I was, uh, so I really enjoyed writing Frank and Fred O'Hurlihy. Those are the two brothers. And, um, and the differences in their personalities cause, you know, much of the story, you know, kind of bends on them. So that, that, that's, those are the two bad guys. So they're running a drug smuggling operation. Yeah, exactly. So they, they own the Major League Baseball team, but they're manipulating one of the players on the team to um, deliver uh, narcotics as the team travels around the country um, playing baseball series. But, um, but their reason for owning the team is that they're manipulating a particular player um, to... Uh, bring narcotics with him as he travels around and, and, he, and he exchanges the narcotics for cash and brings it back to the brothers. That's, that's kind of the criminal part of the, of the book. And we've also got a hired assassin in the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Pete ends up in a um, really good fight scene with this guy in a hotel room um, that uh, I think the readers will enjoy. Almost everyone that has read the books that that fight scene is awesome. <laughs> I was ducking, you know, people saying I, I was like throwing punches with Pete, trying to <laughs> avoid the other guy while they were reading it. So um, I, I think readers will really enjoy that scene. I, I know everyone who's read it comments on it. And who's the beautiful U.S. attorney? Um, well, her name is Christina Learson, and, and she's a U.S. attorney and. And uh, the way I introduce her, that, that's another um, chapter in the book that, that people uh, mention to me. Um, it, it's funny, and um, but uh, they ha- but I don't want to give too much away. But sure. um, it, it's really an interesting scene. I think uh, people will enjoy reading. Is this uh, the start of a series with Pete Dobbins? Um, I don't think so. You know, I I, I can't imagine. Um, you know, the second book where, where Pete had a previous career as an NBA basketball player. Or <laughs> 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 he was a great track star. I mean, I, mean, um, I, I think this is a one-off, but, um, but you never know. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens in the future. But, um, uh, but Pete's background in baseball made this story very unique. And, you know, you, you could plug him into another, you know, FBI thing, but... Um, I don't think it would be the same because um, his background and, and the um, the accident that he that he that occurred to him that happened to him when, when he was playing and ended his baseball career is is um, part of the subplot of the book. Can he get over that? And um, and and that's part of the subplot of the book. Is that where the main suspect is exploiting Dobbins? Well, yeah. I mean, um, 
we're, we're, no, actually, the way they're exploiting him is that they're telling him that if he doesn't, if, if he reveals any of their secrets, they're going to kill him and his family. And his wife is pregnant and um, in, in the late stages of pregnancy. So he's got a lot on the line. Um, but, but Pete, you know, really thinks he can keep it all under control and, and keep these bad guys away from his family, even though they're threatening him that, you know, if you, if you uh, reveal our secrets, um, all these terrible things are going to happen to you. Um, but yeah, if you read the book, I mean, it, it really comes into play, you know, the different things he's trying to do to make, to try and wrap up the investigation before anything like that happens. So it has twists and turns that surprise you along the way. Yeah, it's a cat and mouse game um, between um, you know Pete trying to uh, get close enough to the brothers to understand what it is that they're doing, gather evidence, and 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 the brothers, um, you know, while things are starting to go off, they're trying to understand why certain things are happening, and um, and you know Pete has to kind of ramp up everything he's doing, and um, but uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's a fun read, um, you know, just just as as Pete's trying, he's undercover as himself, but, you know, he's, he's trying to make sure that his FBI background doesn't come into play, that kind of thing. Any other characters you'd like to talk about? Um, uh, uh, there's a number of really fun characters in the book. I mean, there's, uh, you know, Pete's boss, um, Jake Greenberg, who, who's really a by-the-book kind of guy, and um, when Pete first proposes the idea that he wants to go undercover as a Major League Baseball player, you know, Jake's trying to figure out, has this ever been done before? And, and it hasn't been done before. And um, so he knows that his bosses at the FBI are, are going to be automatically skeptical as to whether something like that is going to work or um, or what the consequences could be if it doesn't work and that kind of thing. And so I, th- I think he's an interesting character. I, I think the um, corrupted defense lawyer who was who was representing the man who got wrongly convicted. I think it's really interesting why he was corrupted. So he, he threw a trial on purpose, that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I, there's a lot of little characters that, that, that come and go during the course of the book that, um, that people really enjoy. The title of the book, the diamond deception. We've been listening to the author, Mike Gallagher. Mike, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can, uh, just Google, um, the Diamond Deception with my name. You, you can go to Author House. That's my publisher. You can go to that, their website and read the synopsis of the book. It's available on that website as well as available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. It's hardcover, softcover, or ebook. Thank you so much, Mike, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much, Steve. <laughs> 